0: Now, something a bit different this time around. I'm incredibly lucky at the moment to be in schools in different parts of the country each week, working with incredible maths teachers to try to improve teaching and learning. And I'll tell you what, I am learning so much. Far more, in fact, than anyone ever learns from me in these visits. Now, I already try to share the things I learn through my two free weekly newsletters. That's the Tips for Teachers newsletter, which arrives in your inbox every Monday with a tip for you to try out in your classroom that very week, a video to share with a colleague and a podcast to listen to on your way home. And also the ED newsletter, which comes out on a Tuesday. And this is typically longer form content, which includes things like my coaching case studies and one-off rambles like my recent dive into what I call the myth of copying things down. You can sign up to both of those newsletters. They're completely free using the links in the show notes page. But I wanted another vehicle to share what I've learned, so I reached out to my good friend and podcasting adversary, Mr Ollie Lovell, to see if he would be up for what the cool kids call a collab or what I think I've been calling for the last few years a collab, but keep that quiet. Fortunately, Ollie was well up for it. So each month, the plan is that we're going to get together and pitch each other three things that we've each learnt or been thinking about that month and see where the conversation takes us. I'll also chop up some of these ideas into videos in case you want to share them with colleagues or use them in CPD sessions, and you'll find the videos in the show notes page. So for this first episode, we shared ideas about curriculum, checking for understanding, coaching, sleep, and much more. I really hope you find it useful. Hello, my name is Craig Barton.
1: And I'm Ollie Lovell.
0: And welcome to a brand new uh, thing that we're doing. This is called Tip and tools for teachers and this is episode number one so welcome to the mr barton maths podcast followers but also a big welcome to ollie's e triple r podcast uh, followers as well ollie what's going on What, what what are we doing here and why are we doing it
1: um you sent me an email craig and you said that you'd love to catch up once a month uh and kind of just have an opportunity to reflect upon three things three big takeaways uh tools and tips if you will uh from the past month and just have a have a bit of a chat. And I thought that's a great idea because I love anything that kind of forces me to reflect and think back and kind of distill lessons. And so I was super keen to get involved.
0: Yeah. And I'll tell you what, it's coming at a good time for me. This so I'm going to go deep here, Ollie, before we dive in. So I think when we last talked kind of for a long, for a prolonged period, so not when I did tips for teachers, but when you were on my Mr. Bart Maths, it came at a bit of a low point for me. It wasn't just talking to you that caused the low point. There was more, more stuff, more stuff going on than that. Um, So I'd been, I'd been out of schools for quite a while and I was doing a lot of work. It was kind of post pandemic. So pandemic, obviously I hadn't been traveling around, um, but post pandemic, I was doing a lot of work for diagnostic questions and ED, but that was more kind of office based stuff, writing things. I was doing keynotes and workshops, but I don't know if you find this, Ollie, whenever you do that. You don't get a lot back. It's very much you kind of delivering. um, And it's, yeah, I I don't learn a great deal from that. So I was in a bit of a rut. And that's why I thought, I can't really keep the Mr. Bart Maths podcast going because I don't feel I've got a lot to contribute. So like, In the early days of the podcast, and whenever I hear you interviewing guests, what I love is the fact that you can always say, I did this with my kids last week, or I'm going to try this. And I could always do that. But I got to the stage where I thought, I can't do that anymore. I can't do that. I'm living on, you know, living in the past. So I thought, right, I need, I need, put a break here, change your direction, did tips for teachers, blah, blah, blah. But then over the last four months, I've struck a bit of a deal with my, with, with ED and diagnostic questions. So I'm in schools all the time now, two or three different schools a week, doing some teaching, doing coaching, watching lessons. And I've, I'd say I've never learnt as much. I've never, never been as excited by teaching and learning as I am now. And I was just looking for another good vehicle to kind of share some of the ideas. And I thought you'd be a great person to discuss that with because I've got my newsletter, I've got my podcast, but I thought this would be a good kind of forum to do. it. So that's, that's what I'm kind of hoping to bring to this, kind of share a few ideas, get your response on it and also learn from you if, if that makes sense. So keen. All right, well, should we do it then? So let's say, we, and we don't know what each of us is going to say here. So we've, we've both prepped three ideas. It could be on absolutely anything. So let me hand over to you first and what's your, what, what are you bringing to the table first? Cool. Well, something
1: that's kind of really begun to stick out for me over the past couple of months, I'd say, is the crucial role of curriculum. Let me okay. let me kind of explain this a little bit. So over the past few years, I've been getting deeper and deeper into the value and the importance of kind of a cognitive load theory and ideas like that. And the more I learn about cognitive load theory as an example and lesson design more broadly, the more I realize how much can actually go into designing a really effective explanation, explication or lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, I, I often go to schools and I will like deliver some PD on cognitive load theory at a conference or something like that. And then I go away myself and I'll think, you know, I've just kind of hopefully empowered these teachers with some knowledge, but I've also put a great burden upon them, right? Because they know now now know all these ideas of the redundancy effect, the split attention effect, trans information effect, and so on, that they're now expected to kind of apply to their lessons. And, and you know, lesson planning already takes up an enormous amount of time for teachers. Uh, and then you kind of add on these refinements and it's like, well, you know, how much time is that going to take? how unrealistic of a task is that? And I, I find it myself, you know, now, like, as I'm preparing my own lessons, I'm thinking, wow, like, there's these issues with this lesson, or I want to do all these things, I've got all these ideas how to make it better. But, you know, <laughs> there's only so much time and I've got to, you know, to, to prepare it within. Um, so, it's kind of opened my eyes to the value of having much more centralized lesson planning uh, within mm-hmm. a school. And, there's there's a few there's a few examples I'm kind of keen to talk about um, in terms of this. One one is from my personal experience from like last year. So last year, the year twelve class that I was contributing to and kind of facilitating the running of the, the team, we took a big step and we actually brought something. Here's here's something I prepared earlier. Okay, not nice. A very, not a very pretty uh, cover, but it's basically okay. our further maths bound reference, and it's it's pretty thick as you yep. can see, and it's basically a book that details like how to do pretty much every question that they're likely to come across. And so, it enabled us as a team to kind of have a really structured and consistent approach. And that meant that, um, you know, if students are helping each other outside of class and they're across classes, they're actually talking the same language. And it also meant that if they forgot how to do something, if they missed a class and so on, It was all there in their bound reference Uh, and we actually got phenomenal results, the best results we've ever had with that subject Um, and as a a subject that really stood out within the school as well and really raised our results. So, that was a personal experience. Um, Also, Greg Ashman's school, I've kind of seen some of their curriculum resources recently, Ballarat Clarendon College. They're like the highest achieving um, year 12 uh, results in in Victoria, uh, the state that I'm in Uh, and they have completely centralised lesson plans in mathematics. Uh, And then I spoke, the most recent ERRR podcast that I brought out was with Ben Jensen on the importance of curriculum, and he he sketched some pictures of uh, Finland, Portugal, Estonia, and France over the last couple of decades. And, you know, Finland and France, who were traditionally super strong in their performance, have really slid down the tables uh, in terms of Pisa, and Portugal and Estonia have actually... Kind of moved up and sh- shown a lot of growth, and essentially the opposite plan has happened in both in both scenarios. So Finland and France have both moved from a highly specified curriculum uh, that's focused on being knowledge rich to much more of a skill based and kind of laissez faire curriculum, and conversely, Portugal and Estonia have move from less structure to a really, really highly specified knowledge-rich curriculum uh, that's national and and, and standardized. And so we've kind of seen national examples as well. So from my personal experience and also things I've learned about what's happening on the international stage, I've just become more and more convinced about the value and even more so the importance of kind of centralized planning, highly specified uh, content uh, that can then be incrementally improved upon with teams and and schools
0: love it all right so a few things on this um so the first is just going back to what you said right at the start there about when you do pd and the burden being on the people to then go back and change it and so on um, this probably won't be the first time either this conversation or in this series that we do where we reference Dylan William because for everything he's got a great quote or a great idea on the thing he always says is whenever whenever you're suggesting a change to teachers the question to always ask is what are you going to stop doing to make this change because again we've got finite time, finite attention, workload issues and so on and so forth and that's always, it's always what I try and build into my PD so the first thing I say is look there's a load of ideas here the worst thing you could do is try and change everything all at once because it'll be too much for you, too much for your kids. So pick the one thing that you want to work on first. And also, what are you going to stop doing to free up time, free up attention to to take this on? So I think that's that's a, that's an important point. So I love that one. Um, second thing, Greg Ashman. So this feels bizarre what I'm about to say now, but it was only when I interviewed Greg Ashman for the first time, which I think was in 2017, and he pitched the idea of central lesson plans to me back then. And I thought he'd lost his mind. I thought, like, why the hell would you do that? Because the whole thing about being a teacher is you've got to be creative. You've got to come up with your own ideas and so on. And I spent the first 10, 12 years of my career designing my own lessons. Very rarely would I use, certainly not a whole lesson somebody produced, maybe the odd thing here or there, but... It felt like that's one of the things that being a teacher is, creating your lesson plans from scratch. And whenever he spoke about, and we had a big kind of, kind of bit of an argument about it, and he said, look, if you've got something that's been designed by an experienced, skilled teacher, been refined over the years, why wouldn't you want your least, less experienced teachers to use it? I was like, all right. It was a bit of a watershed moment for me thinking about this. But it's really interesting, and this is my final two points, then I'll shut up about this all. Um, when I go into schools, and I work with maths departments, as I do a lot, I see two different things. So, two what I would... Yeah, yeah, let's put it this way, two different things. So, I see departments who the teachers do essentially whatever they want. They've got a scheme of work, but the scheme of work is just a few bullet points. And it's like, you've two weeks to teach fractions, and in those two weeks, cover, adding and subtracting, multiplying and dividing and so on, but just do whatever you want. And sometimes it works but the vast majority of the time it doesn't work. I think you need an incredibly strong department to pull that off because what you're banking on is that teachers will be able to use their skills, their expertise with their own individual kind of styles to pull together the best way of doing things. And it feels, I can only speak from my experience, you get a bit of a lesson lottery there where in room 13, something Fantastic's happening, in room 14, not quite so good. But whenever I say... It might be a good idea to start centralizing some of these. The thing that always comes back is teacher autonomy. No, I want my teachers to have complete freedom and so on. And yeah, five years ago, I'd have said I'm all with you, but now I'm I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not so sure. And the final, final thing I'll say is there's a lethal mutation of this all. And I don't know if you've come across this in Australia, but you see this all the time in the UK, right? And that is where maths departments have bought into some package so we have white rose is a good one here we have white rose maths which is a um years seven eight and nine and, and ten and eleven as well um they have powerpoints for every lesson assessments it's but the resources are brilliant right but what you get is that departments buy these packages in and then i've seen this i saw this last week actually You'll get a teacher delivering a lesson from this PowerPoint and the teacher is just clicking through and things are appearing. And I saw one head of maths doing it. He was clicking through. He was surprised by what was appearing on the board. He was like, where the hell has that come from? And the kids were like, what's going on? And this is your classic kind of revealing the maths, you know, just click, 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 and these things are appearing. And I think that's a potential lethal mutation from this. I don't think it'll happen when you've got a booklet like yours, but you can imagine you've got everything so planned out, that the teacher thinks they can just turn up, press a button, and and magical happen. So, there's a few reflections of that I don't know if you've got anything to kind of come back on on any of that.
1: I will, uh, but I'm going to save it till later on in the podcast, Craig, because things are going to get really juicy.
0: Oh God, look at you! You're good at that. All good teaser there. I like that. All right, should I do my first one then? Should I go <laughs> love, for that? I'd love to hear that. All right, let's do it. So I've gone for a bit of variety uh, with these. So this first one's a fairly quick one. And I know you love a bit of checking for understanding. And we all seem to talk about checking for understanding. So I thought I'll do one. I'll do one on this. So I wrote about this fairly recently, but I've been looking for someone to discuss this with because I think it's it's potentially a bit controversial. So I'll set the scene. So this was a lesson I was watching on. um, It was going on to be on solving linear equations. It was, I think, like a year and 10 lesson, I think it was. And the do now, the starter, was on um, order of operations. So the thinking be- with the, the teacher was he wanted to make sure that they understood the order of operations so that they could then choose the correct operations to do the inverse of when they were doing solving linear equations. All fine, all fine. So there was three questions in this do now, um, all kind of number-based order of operations. And the kids were answering them on mini whiteboards, mass participation. Everything was looking great. I'm thinking, whoa, this is good. This is, this is really good stuff. So teacher didn't say a word for question one. Kids did it, held it up. Fine. Didn't say a word for question two. Kids did it, held it up. Bear in mind, he's assessing prior knowledge here, right? Question three, this is what the teacher did. He said, right, just before you answer this, have a look at this question. Now, it may not look like there are any brackets here, but actually there's some hidden brackets. I wonder if you can spot them. Off you go. Now, the question itself had like a, it was like 3 plus 5 on the top of a fraction divided by 2. So, the, the hidden brackets he's talking about are on the, on the numerator here. But what happened as a result, kids held up the mini whiteboards, everyone got it right. So, in the teacher's mind, they're, he's checked their understanding, their understanding's secure, so they can crack on with solving linear equations. But in our chat after, so in our coaching session afterwards... I said, how, how reliable do you think that check for understanding was? And he said, well, pretty reliable because everybody responded. I said, yeah, absolutely right. Mass participation, blah, 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 blah. But I said, but you gave a hint. You gave a hint before that check for understanding. And I said, why did you give a hint? And he said, because I suspected my kids would struggle. And I said, well, that's fantastic. You've preempted where your kids might struggle, but you've given a hint before the check for understanding. So how do you know that hint was needed? And what we talked about was a better way of doing it would have been to not say a word, ask the question, the kids respond. And if there was then, you know, confusion in the room that he could see from the answers, then the hint can come. Then the explanations can come and the modeling can come and so on. Or he may have found that when he held up the the kids' boards, they understood it without any hint. So he had a much more... Valid, reliable check for understanding. But now I spotted this, I see this all the time, you know. The amount of time, and I I know I've done this myself, I know. The amount of time teachers give hints and scaffolds and explanations before a check for understanding, and it really reduces the validity of that check. And I think it gets confused with this notion of scaffolding, right? Because we're we're told if you look at Rosenshine or anything like that, we know it's a good idea to scaffold when kids are new to an idea. But this isn't that. This is checking for understanding. This is something kids have either learned that lesson or in the past, and you want to see where their knowledge is at without any hints and cues, and then the hints and cues and support and scaffolds can come later. So it's just something to be aware of. I see this all the time. It comes from the right place. It's a teacher realizing that kids probably need support at this moment, but it's moving that support after the check for understanding, I think it'd make a big difference. Well, what's your thoughts mm. on that, all?
1: yeah that's super interesting Craig Uh, a follow-up question might be um where would you see well actually I'll swap it around could you see any potential benefits of doing it the way he did it
0: no I don't think so um not if not if you wanted to know where the kids are truly at I think Yeah I I can't unless you can all like I mean maybe you can make a, a claim for kind of the kids confidence and blah 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 blah. but if it's a low stakes check for understanding and the kids are used to that that you know no grades are going to be assigned nobody's going to be made to feel embarrassed the teacher just wants to know where they are at so they can respond accordingly I can't see any argument why you wouldn't shift that support till after the check again unless I'm missing something.
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm I, I'm with you. In this particular question, did you say it was kind of like at the start? It was kind of like a. Start it was the do or now. It's it
0: retrieval. Do now. Yeah, was, prerequisite knowledge.
1: Was, yeah, okay. So it was kind of warming them up for the, um, for the because it was prerequisite. Yeah, yeah, okay, got it. Um, this goes to the heart of a challenge, which is always present in like activating prior knowledge, uh, prerequisite knowledge, kind of a challenge, um, and that is that, like there's a massive benefit if students can actually retrieve it themselves because they, you know, increase the storage strength of yep. that memory, as we know from your fantastic uh, interview with Robert Elizabeth Bjork. Um, but then there's also, a, there can also be a cost to that if, depending upon the prior, like the level of average prior knowledge of the students in the class, right? So, if, I don't know, I, I think that there's, yes, at the start it is a, check for understanding. But I think the other purpose of that activity is simply just getting students ready for the rest of the lesson. Mm -hmm. And if the teacher is pretty sure that students are are gonna get it wrong anyway, um, then I I don't think it's as much of an issue if they do say, remember, dot, 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 uh, because of the function of it as like a precursor to what's coming later on. Now, if this was the end of the lesson and the teacher was trying to think, now I'm wondering if the students kind of got what I taught in the lesson. I'm And I, this is like a really a, a check for understanding in that context. I would 100% agree with you that like in that context, we're definitely sure that hints should not be given. But in a starter where we're kind of warming them up and some students might not have, you know, they might've missed the lesson where they looked at the invisible brackets or or whatever it might be. And we're just trying to get students up to the level that they're ready to participate in the lesson. And we're trying to move through that quite quickly. I can see that in some context, in that context on some days and in some ways, that might be an okay thing to do.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I think I'd fully buy into that argument if I was happy that having that hint in the queue about the brackets in this case was enough then to kind of sustain that for the rest of the lesson. So, because this was going to be really important, this notion of hidden brackets was fundamental to how they were going to be taught to solve linear equations later on. So, if being given a hint or a cue for that, which essentially then did all the major work of that question, that was the key insight that the kids needed. If they knew that, it was just a bog-standard question. That was the key insight. So, by effectively telling them that, What I think we're gambling on then is that the lack of effort they then need to put in themselves to answer that question is going to be okay because they're going to then somehow remember that for the rest of that lesson and that's going to act as some kind of cue. Whereas if we want to get this boost in retrieval and storage strength, we want that retrieval to be be effortful. So I think it would have worked better without that. And as I say, the, the whole point I was trying to make with him is The kids may well have known it. The kids, they may not have known that at all. And for the sake of an extra five seconds, in an environment where, and he created a lovely environment, it was really low stakes. Like the kids weren't bothered about being right or wrong. They were fine with that. So I couldn't see any reason why he couldn't have just seen where they were. And then of course, oh, this is the other thing, right? He then could have used some of the kids who got it right and then really empowered them to say, well, you know, explain your answer, talk us through this. Whereas it was all coming from him. It was all coming from him. So yeah, I I just really like these things where, I mean, you know, you can go into a lesson and you can see like five or six different things that you could suggest the teacher may do. And to go back to your point originally, some of these may require big change, a big burden on the teacher. Whereas what was quite nice about this, I thought anyway, was the teacher didn't have to do Anything different for in terms of their planning, just literally switch the order around in what they do. And I just I just think it's worth being aware of. If you're checking for understanding, just consider how little you can get away with saying before that check, because I think it really does boost the, the validity of it.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, yeah, if the primary goal is to check for understanding, then 100% definitely with you. Another thing there is if, if, it is, if that prerequisite knowledge is going to be like a core thing in the lesson, then the key part is really, it's almost kind of actually reteaching it to the students. So the way that that teacher could have done it is to do the check for understanding first. And to be fair, that check, if it's all about invisible brackets, that check for understanding isn't that good anyway, because if students just kind of do this, do the equation, like the five plus three divided by the two in order of the way that they see it, they might not even understand invisible brackets and they might just get it right anyway. So there's probably issues around that question anyway. Um, But if that's the case, and then it's like, you know, 100% of students get it right, then the teacher would ideally also say, okay, get a student to explain it or to say, fantastic, we all got that right. But just before we move on, I wanna make sure that we're Mm -hmm. all sure uh, exactly the key principle behind this, because it's gonna be really important today. What we're looking at is invisible brackets and blah, 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 blah. Um, So yeah, just like really reteaching it, even if the check for understanding hints at the idea that they they might've had that.
0: Nice, love it, love it, okay. What's your second one you're uh, sharing with us today?
1: Number two for me is all about diagnosis in coaching. Uh, so within coaching, one of the biggest challenges for teachers or coaches, should I say, in addition to just like having in their brain a whole heap of uh, tools and tools and tips, Craig, uh, to <laughs> nice kind of, to kind of draw upon, uh, and these like the kind of uh, content you've just been sharing with us. Now, it's also a challenge to work out well what is it that this particular teacher can or should work on based upon this small segment I've seen of their lesson. Mm. And this is something I learned from Josh Goodrich and an idea he's been developing for a while. And then I've subsequently, and Peps McRae and I've been kind of working with Josh on it as well to flesh it out a little bit more. But Josh's key insight was that we can think about the diagnosis of coaching the next kind of action step for teachers to work on, to be based around Willingham's simple model of memory. Uh, Mm -hmm. which is absolutely fantastic. So, you know, within that model, things in the environment, students need to pay attention to it, moves into working memory. We've got to think about cognitive load. They think about it, moves up into long-term memory, hopefully gets stored and we reinforce it through retrieval. So the idea is that we can, you know, that's how learning happens and we can also use it as a kind of diagnostic flow chart. So the first question that a coach can ask when they're in a teacher's classroom is, are there any attention issues? So, are all mm. students kind of paying attention? Uh, like, are there any disruptions? And, you know, if we we're kind of... Currently, we're reordering the step lab sequence um, for the Australian version, at least, under this. So, in intention, we've got things like, you know, entry routine. Are students attending to their learning as soon as they come in? Active listening routine. Are you able to get their attention back straight away? And then addressing student disruptions. If the attention's pretty good, tick, we can move on to thinking about cognitive load. So, you know, is the teacher building upon pre-existing knowledge. Are the explanations kind of clear and and memorable? And have they provided scaffolds and models so that students' cognitive load um, isn't being overwhelmed or students' cognitive resources aren't being overwhelmed? Once you've got that, we can think about thought, which is when we're starting to move information from, you know, process it in working memory and move it up into long-term memory. So, we can think about, you know, questioning. Is questioning driving thought? Is there the rigor there, the kind of content you're relating to? Uh, And then independent practice. What's actually happening in an independent practice? Are students thinking about the core content? From there, into feedback, things like culture of error whole class response and reteaching, and then we can kind of move on to thinking about consolidation and relating to retrie- retrieval practice. So for me, this was just a super useful mental model that already fit uh, really, really well with the way I think about learning in general. Uh, and I thought it was really helpful for teachers and coaches to know about it uh, in terms of diagnosing next steps for teachers to work on.
0: That's good. Give give us those five steps. Was it five steps? Just give us those again, I'll just so we can get, get those all together.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, This actually, So, I started with attention, but actually the first thing that's worth starting with is curriculum, which is what I started talking about Ah, with my first takeaway today. And that's because like if we think about the Oliver Kiviglioli image with kind of the environment and student pays attention to something in the environment. The first thing for us to make sure is that the content in the environment is actually worth paying attention to. Um, So, I'd probably put like curriculum first. And that was an insight we had had on on the plane to Perth with Peps and and Josh. Uh, Then attention, cognitive load thought feedback consolidation
0: love it right okay now i could talk to you all day about this all because this is what i'm obsessed with at the moment right and i'll will t- tell you you're you're partly to blame for this so i mentioned at the start one of my um, things at the moment is i'm in school's lots and um, i do one of two different things in school's so model one is i'll spend the morning watching lessons And this tends to be what I do the first day of support in a school, spend the morning watching lessons, 10 minutes here, five minutes there, dipping in, dipping back out and so on and so forth. And I'll look for a trend. I'll look for something as a department that feels like something we can all work on together. And then in the afternoon, I'll do some bespoke CPD on that with all the, uh, excuse me, (coughs) with, with all the department together and that'll be fine. But then once we move into kind of day two, three and four of support, it tends to move into a more individual coaching model because then staff have got different things they want to be working on and, and so on and so forth. So I'm absolutely obsessed with coaching and my two favorite things that I've kind of read or listened to on coaching is first your interview with Josh, I thought was Phenomenal! I tweeted it out at the time. I thought it was brilliant. The double, the, the the idea of doing the double bill, with the kind of theory and then what listening to him coach you, I thought was superb. And I'll put links down the show. and I thought it was amazing. But then also, and again, he's going to come up in one of my later tips. Um, Adam Boxer writes really well on on coaching, and I had him on the my Mister Bart Maths podcast, the episode before last on how to observe a lesson, and we talked for two hours about how he observes lessons. And I think what I try and do now is a kind of a bit of a hybrid of of the two approaches. Um, So I'm going to ask you a tricky question in a moment, but I'll just just do a reflection first. Um, So when I go into a lesson, I use what Adam calls this hypothesis model. So I'll spend the first few minutes just getting a bit of a sense of what's going on. I'll take a few pictures. I normally take a picture of what's on the teacher's board, grab a book, take a picture of where the kids are at, just so I've got a bit of a frame of reference, and I'll just take a step back and just get a sense of, of what's going on. And then I'll form a hypothesis, a hypothesis about something that might not be going right in the lesson. So maybe the teachers started doing an explanation, but as I look around, I can see all the kids aren't paying full attention. Some are trying to write things down and so on, or the teachers asked a question, to check for understanding, but they've only heard from one child. And I just wonder whether that child at the back really knew that and blah, blah, blah. So I form a hypothesis. And then for the next five or ten minutes, I'll test that hypothesis. So I'll gather critical evidence. So I'll speak to a child or I'll do some counting round, get some actual physical evidence that then I can take back and we can use in our kind of coaching session going forward. And it's really interesting, whenever you and Josh were talking, you talked about the trickiest part of the um, kind of coaching conversation. I think it's what you called the bid, wherever, you know, everything's going well up to that point. And then the coach says, right, here's the thing I think we should work on. And it can be potentially quite awkward and so on. But if you have that critical evidence, and I think the w- the way Josh did it with you, is he'd um, he'd listened to some of the things that you were saying to the kids in terms of feedback you were giving whilst you were going round and stuff. And I'll do it, I'll say, it's almost like a bit of a reveal. So I I did one with a guy recently. This was one of my favourite ones. Um, And I said, right, you were doing a brilliant explanation of the volume of a cone. And he was at the board and he was relating the volume of a cone to the volume of a cylinder. And it was brilliant. So I took a picture of his explanation. And I said... Whilst you were doing that, what do you reckon your kids were doing? And he said, well, they were, they were listening to me. They were they were listening to my explanation. I said, right, I'm just going to show you some pictures of what your kids are actually doing. And I showed him some pictures and about 30 to 40% of the kids were had their head down writing because they were trying to write what he was doing on the board. But the key point there was, we know it's very difficult to write and listen at the same time. Also, he's at the board gesturing things and the kids are missing it because they've got their head down and so on and so forth. So that critical evidence was the key for me in terms of that that kind of coaching conversation. That then gets them on board, I find. And I think whenever you were chatting to Josh, because again, you were, difficult's the wrong word, but it got a bit kind of fiery at one point. It's right, con- It's <laughs> the right word, Craig. <laughs> but then whenever he had that evidence and he was able to read back to you the things that you said, you could almost feel it that you were then kind of coming on board and so on. And I always find that. So I think that critical evidence is key. But to loop this back to what you were saying with the, the kind of almost hierarchy of things to look out for, I would say nine times out of 10, it stops at attention for me. It's always attention because... Again, like you've said they alluded to there, if you don't have the kids' attention, everything else is a waste of time. I'd almost go so far as to say curriculum's a bit of a waste of time, right? If the kids aren't attending to it, forget it. And it's, but it's, it's very rarely what the teacher thinks they need to be working on. Like when I have these conversations with heads of department, it's okay, is there enough challenge in our curriculum? Well, let's worry about that in a minute. Let's check your kids are all paying attention. Let's check your teacher is getting data and evidence from your kids that they're understanding, you know, what they're saying. Then we can worry about um, curriculum. Then we can worry about independent practice, building resilience and all that kind of thing. So for me, it, the vast majority of the time, it it always stops at attention. Um, I've got one question to ask you all, but I just wanted to pause in case there was anything you wanted to come back on um, about that.
1: I think I couldn't agree more. I think Josh calls it the the pivotal piece of evidence. It's the, it's the bit of evidence on which the bid kind of really hinges. Uh, so yeah, couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here's my, here's my question. And I'm going to ask this to peps actually, cause I'm talking to him again next week, but I just wanted to get your take very, very quickly. I'll tell you the bit of the instructional coach model that I can't do. Right. That I find bloody awkward. Right. And that is the rehearsal. Oh my God. Right. So I love the praise at the start. I love the bid, the thing you call the bid, the kind of critical evidence. I love that. I, what I also love is the kind of implementation planning where we sit down and say, okay, when's the first time we can make this change? Let's plan it all out together. Looking great at that point. The rehearsal bit, like especially if it's something like cold call, and they have to then like like either we go into an empty classroom and we're practicing questions, or they're doing it to me. I just find it bloody awkward, Ollie. So how would you get this rehearsal bit right? And do I need to do it? Can I not cut this bit out?
1: Oh, mate, you should have you come to the training we ran on uh, 6th of March here. We had Josh and Pep's down and we had 150 teachers standing up in a big hall rehearsing stuff for about two hours. Wow. It was amazing. Okay. It was okay. so good. Um, I think Josh is coming out in October again, so you should fly over, Craig, and we'll, we'll do a <laughs> session. But, well, I'm going to answer your questions in reverse order. Do you okay. need to do it? you need to do it. Interesting, Uh, okay. Because, you know, teaching is a performance profession and the fact of the matter is, you know, Sam Sims and and colleagues have a fantastic paper on this. It doesn't take long for teachers to form habits, right? And if you're working with even a first-year teacher, if they're in term two, term three, they probably form some pretty consistent habits around the way they ask questions, where they're looking in the classroom, all these kinds of things. And if we want to actually sustainably change teacher practice, what we need to do, we need to break old habits and form new ones. And the way to do that is through deliberate practice. A great example of this is I was working with a teacher yesterday on cold calling, uh, conveniently, given, (laughs) given what you just mentioned there. And... He, he found, and I was I was talking about norms of participation and one of the success criteria I added um, to the cold calling uh, step for, that we were working on from the prior coaching cycle was uh, make it really clear how you want students to respond. And this is because he was in the habit of ask, starting his questions with who can tell me. Mm, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a third or fourth year teacher and the, the number of times he has said who can tell me in his career, would be just in the thousands, yes, right? Yes. And so, we we scripted exactly what he was going to say instead of who can tell me, yeah. which was, you know, the question is, right? And then when I was like, okay, well next, you, you know, you're going to teach the lesson later on today. Can you, let's pull up the slideshow you're going to be using. Go, let's, let's do it. And, you know, first thing that comes out of his mouth, actually, he did it right <laughs> a couple of times. And then third time, it's like, who can tell me? Yeah. And he's like, yeah. oh, no. And so, that's fine, you know, we just, we just need to do it. And- do it over and over and over yes. again because replacing that habit is absolutely crucial. Um, how can you how can you get over it? Honestly, I I, I think it's it's actually fun. Do
0: it you, might just you be it, like you must find it a bit awkward at times, do you or not? No, it's just I don't know. It's just fun. Like it's
1: you have to kind. Of, it's like anything. If you're you know if you're at a if you're at a party right and you want everyone to play a game. Uh, You can't just be like, "Oh, everyone, we can play a game now." I think, Um, you know, it might be fun if we play the game. (laughs) You got to be like, "Oh, guys, we have this amazing opportunity right now to play this game." You know, I heard about this game the game the other day. I heard on a podcast. I did actually hear hear about this game the other day. It's called Poetry for Neanderthals. Yeah, there's like a you have to like explain words using monosyllabic words. Like explain a concept using monosyllabic words. And if you break the rules, you get hit on the head with a club. So, you know, guys, this fantastic game, we're all going to laugh our heads off. It's going to be great. We've got to explain these words. We've got to make poetry. Um, you get hit in the head with a club. Who wants to give it a go, right? If I do it like that, it gets people on board. And that's that's basically how I frame rehearsal. Um, I just say, all right, now we get to rehearse. Now we get to practice it to really make this... Make this concrete, you know. Now, we get to build the habits that are going to really serve you well in the classroom. And I think doing it like that is absolutely crucial. I think another thing is about breaking the kind of potential power imbalance where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to like, I'm going to get you, make you practice now and I'm going to tell you if your practice is okay. But there's also the issue with like... Um, Oh, you know, us as teachers are practicing. Why why don't other people have to practice? So, what I actually do in my first coaching session with people, uh, I have a video of myself coaching my boss, who's the director of teaching and learning at our school. And he's practicing his entry routine. And we're having a bit of fun with it. But also, I am also giving him feedback. And so, in the first coaching session that I have with anyone, I will say, all right, within coaching, we're going to do this thing called rehearsal. And I talk about habits and teaching and blah, blah, blah. And I say... Here's a video of me me coaching Mark, uh, and this is what the first was going to look like. And they watch it, and I and I say, "Does it is that something you think would help you improve your teaching as well?" And every time they say yes, right. That's and cool. so they've seen they've seen a leader within the school do it. They've seen that it can be a bit of fun. They've they've actually committed and bought into it, and that provides me with a springboard. That in that first coaching session, I can say, "All right, now it's an opportunity for us to practice."
0: Right. Okay. You've, you've sold me. I'm going to try. I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah. Cause it's been on the back burner, this rehearsal bit. So it's back to the forefront. Okay. I'll, I'll report back next month. I'll report back to see whether, oh, yeah, mate. how that's gone.
1: Can't, how that's can't wait to hear about it. <laughs>
0: All right. Okay. Number. So my number two, right. Have you come across this? So this was a blog post shared by Adam Boxer. The tick trick. Have you seen this? I right, I'll tell you now, you're going to love this. You are going to absolutely love this. So Adam, I think he's he's I'm gonna say he's the best current writer on education kind of theory and stuff. I think he's absolute. I think he's I think he's brilliant. And I read this and I thought this is gold, right? So he obviously writes things in a in a science context, but and I always always have my kind of maths hat on. But I think this can work really well. So the idea is so Adam's obviously a big mini whiteboard user, I'm a huge mini whiteboard user. But the point he makes is well, this is my interpretation of it, I'll put a link to the original blog post in in the show notes for this, that if you do like a whole class check for understanding on mini whiteboards and it's just like all you're interested in is the final answer, then it's pretty easy. So if you've got two thirds on your board, you've got it right, fine, everyone's happy. But if you want to check for understanding of a multi-stage kind of procedure, where actually each line of working is, is really important, you don't just want to emphasize that final answer, but the kids focus in on it. So let's say a good example of this might be something like expanding double brackets in maths. So, you know, you go through the, hold up your mini whiteboards. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Right. Let me grab a board here. Right. So I can see Emma has got, this is on Emma's board. And no matter as a teacher, how much you talk them through line by line, all the kids are interested in is have they got that same final answer as Emma's got. And what that may mean is a couple of things. One, they may have made a mistake early on, but they can't diagnose where it is because all their attention's on the final answer. So that's a bit problematic. So then they're relying on you to try and figure it out and you may have loads of kids in this similar situation to deal with. Or just for kind of pragmatic reasons, it may be to get method marks in an exam. It's actually really important that they put line one exactly like this, line two exactly like this and so on. So what Adam says, and it's such a simple idea, is he calls it the tip tick trick. He says, when you check for understanding on a multi-step question, and you get all the, um, get all, you know, pick a, pick a kid's board as the kind of example thing, you say to the kids, right, look at line one here. If your line one is exactly the same as this line one, tick it. And everyone then has an explicit action that they have to do. Okay, let's look at line two. If your line two starts with a six, give it a tick. Anything else, no tick, because it has to start with a six. Kids go on ticket. And you can talk them through each stage of the solution, and they're forced then to have a look at theirs and compare it. And I've tried this, so Adam wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. I've tried this in a couple of classes. Oh, it's a game changer, this, you know. It sounds so simple, but it's a game changer. It makes the kids buy so much into this kind of the the kind of reflection phase and it picks up on so many problems that otherwise might have gone kind of undone so i'll tell you how i've started using this and i'll shut up and let you reflect on this so this was also partly influenced by you as well Al. so when i read um tools for teachers and it compelled me to go back and listen to your episode that was all about the we do do you remember that one with the lady i figured give me the lady's name you know Anita what? Archer Anita Archer yeah 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 so I always used to cut out the we do I was always an I do then you have a go at this one but having listened to that episode I, I do a lot more we do now so what can work well for, for me anyway when I do this kind of multi-step procedures let's let's use expanding double brackets as, 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 a, as an as an as an um, example I'll do a model of one and then I say okay right we're going to do the we do now so get your mini whiteboards here's um here's the question right just write me down your first line. All I want, what's the first line of work in everybody on your boards? Three, two, one, hover it. Okay, fine. That's looking good. Okay, right. All I want next is your next line. That's all I'm bothered about. Nothing else. Just your next line. Write it up. blah, blah, blah. And again, during this, I'll be cold calling and getting different responses from kids. But crucially, I'm checking for understanding line by line. But then when I do the second example, I'll say, okay, now I'm going to give you one. And I'll just, again, this is a whole other conversation, but I'll use a bit of variation theory here. I'll literally just change one thing from the we do to the you do. And I'll say, okay, now I want you to go from start to finish. So on your boards, do, you know, the three lines, start to finish. Hold up your boards. Right, now we're going to do the ticking. So first line, does it look like this? Exactly like this. If so, give it a tick. So this idea of kind of the we do assessing for understanding each phase, but then using this tick trick when their kids are being a little bit more independent and doing a few more steps on their own ollie it's changing my life this for doing worked examples you know because you've got all the mass participation it's quick it's speedy you're checking for understanding all the time the kids are being a bit more taking a bit more accountability for their own actions and so on so yeah that's where i'm at at the moment So the tick trick what do you think of that
1: that's great, Craig. Absolutely love it. Uh, and I will be using that in my next lesson, 100%. <laughs> um, I was just thinking what that might look like if we were to apply it to other other subjects. Mm. And I was thinking it's probably looking at kind of success criteria.
0: Yeah, I think so. So,
1: you know, in, I don't know, psychology where it's like a written answer would be like, okay, here's the first thing you needed to do to get the mark. You need to use this key piece of vocabulary tick if you got that bang blah 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 blah, blah, and so on Um, but yeah super powerful love it and couldn't agree more like Adam is a massive brain and super creative and he just comes up with a lot of original stuff he does uh, does. when it comes to teaching uh, that embodies the principles that we all hold dear but often makes it just a little bit more practical and and always with a catchy name as well yeah he's good Uh, so yeah head off to Adam
0: (laughs) All right, also your final one now I think
1: all right, I told you I was going to get juicy, Craig. Here yeah, go. yeah. So earlier, you talked about the danger of kind of slideshows that kind of reveal mathematics. Right? I did, I did. My takeaway three is the power of a slideshow for mathematics. No way, <laughs> it is, it oh, is. It was as if we planned it, Craig. <laughs> So I have recently actually started to use um, slideshows for maths and this has been kind of inspired by my first point which is all about the importance of curriculum. Okay. And see like trying to get my head around how is it that you can actually at a whole school level specify exactly the procedure that's going to be used so that when a student learns a procedure in year 7 and then they encounter it again as a you know building block of something else in year 8 and so on. It's actually the same and students don't get confused and you're actually just reinforcing the same uh, neural pathways, which Mm -hmm. is exactly what we want. And I came down on the side of like, yeah, slideshows are great. Uh, They're also really powerful for creating uh, daily reviews, which is like a really big thing here in Australia. It's kind of like really fast-paced practicing. It's kind of like a do now, but it's usually... facilitated by with a slideshow and yeah. often you kind of you 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 often do that thing that we were talking about earlier in your second in your first takeaway as well, um I think it was, where you do a check for understanding and then you reteach anyway. Yeah. Right. So students are getting both and every student's kind of brought along for the ride. The reason why I'm I've been loving these kind of slideshows for maths recently is because first of all it, it, it frees up my cognitive load. Mm-hmm. I don't actually have to be thinking about what comes next because the slideshow has it for me. Now, obviously, I'm not going to the classroom without looking at this slideshow, uh, but the difference is rather than prepare the lesson, now I just need to prepare for the lesson. Uh, well, I mean, I do I do need to do both actually because um, I'm writing the slideshows. But if someone else has taken the slideshows that I was writing or if someone else was writing one, I don't have to prepare. I just have to prepare for it. The other thing, what that does is it frees up my working memory because I'm not thinking about the what the next step of the mathematics is. And I can focus more on whether or not the students are paying attention. So linking back to that kind of coaching diagnosis, right? So if I show up a the next line of working and we're coming back to kind of some of Michael Pershing's worked example content here, I can say, all eyes on the board, reading line two of working and I can progressively reveal it. And I can actually face the students and I can see if every student is f- is focusing on that. Uh, like I mentioned, standardized procedures, really great for knowledge management year to year. So if you teach a lesson and it doesn't go that well. You can tweak that lesson when you're finished, and that's like there stored for next year, right? With a hypothesis, with a note. If the teacher's kind of doing the working on the board, there's no record of that. How do you, how do you actually get fine-grain kind of refinements of what's going on? Uh, and also, uh, you know, it just supports new teachers phenomenally because. The, the amount of time it would take for you for you to sit down for an experienced teacher in the department to sit down with a new teacher and say, "All right, here's there's you know fifty no probably I oh don't know let's take a guess a hundred procedures that we need to teach the students this year something like that um, here's exactly how we teach every one of them at this school and then expecting the new teacher to somehow record that store it somewhere it's just completely unrealistic whereas if you put it in a slideshow or similar um, you can you can totally master that. Now, the cost is, takes a massive time, there's a massive upfront cost to create it. Uh, It can take a couple of hours even to create a a lesson, whereas, you know, you can probably just rock up to a class. I have a year eight class this year, I could just rock up and teach it, but with a slideshow it takes a significant amount of time. But I think long term for a school, the investment is worth it.
0: Right. Strap yourselves in here, right? So, you... You you add me on the rehearsal bit, right? I can't see you getting me on board with this. So I'll, I'll give you my, my response. So first, but I'm glad you've brought this up all because this, this is what we want. If we just agree all the time, nobody's happy with that. Let, let's let's get it kicking off here. So for just to clarify what this looks like, are we talking, so you would have animated, let's take expanding double brackets because we were talking about it before. So you'd have kind of, pre-typed in each line of the solution and it's all animated to appear kind of one click at a time one you know line by line and so on and so forth Will so that be mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yeah right okay this is interesting so the first thing to say and again this, this sounds like a real, real horrible thing to say i can only talk from my experiences some of the worst lessons i've seen in the last few months have been these kind of pre pre-animated ones because of the reason I spoke about before that it's this click 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 through thing I think one thing that suffers straight away is the pace I think teachers find it very hard to get the pace right without they go too fast because they're not having to do the thinking they're literally just having to do the, the click but the biggest reason why I don't do this and I'll offer a solution to this in a second is because of the disconnect so the message I want to give kids is what I'm doing here at the front is exactly the thing that I want you to be doing in your books. Because we're all in this together. I'm going to do it and you're going to be able to do it. I think there's a massive disconnect. If kids see you, the way you're doing it is you're pressing a button on a blank screen where things are just magically appearing versus the way they're having to do it with a pen on grid paper or whatever in their exercise books, actually using their brain. And it can literally seem like magic is happening where these things are appearing. Now, of course, the worst versions of this is where the teacher, as I said before, doesn't have a, literally doesn't have a clue what's going to appear on the screen. And obviously that's going to be, that's going to be a disaster. But I still think even with a skilled practitioner, you don't have that same connection with the kids during that modeling as you would do if you do what I'm going to suggest instead, which hopefully kind of solves a few of your concerns. So I'll I'll outline this, what I do now, and then I'll I'll shut up. So one option is you take a PowerPoint, you remove all the kind of pre-animated solutions, you just have the question, and same on on a OneNote or whatever, and you do the kind of modeling on the board. Fine, fine. Um, What I think is better is the visualizer, I'm getting an exercise book that is exactly the same as the kid's book. So you're removing that disconnect. I am literally writing with a pen, with a ruler, in the exact same thing that you're going to be writing on. You can see me doing it. I'm facing the front. I'm not going to turn to the board. So I've got better kind of sense of your attention. But here's the really interesting thing. So I think you make a really good point, Al, that... When you're, when you're kind of doing the modeling, it's not that you're just focusing on the modeling, you're also focusing on all the kids paying attention and so on and so forth. So you can make your life a lot easier by using this kind of double page approach. So what I do is the left-hand page of my exercise book, that's where I'm doing my live modeling. The right-hand page, I've got the written solution already done that I've written out when I've prepped. I've also got it annotated with anything where I think the kids may struggle or where a question I want, might want to ask the kids. So actually, as I'm doing the live modeling, I can have a little glance to my right and I can remove some of that kind of, you know, cognitive load of having to remember the solution. And particularly if I'm doing some tricky maths, like, you know, grade 12 or grade 13 maths, where, you know, I have to really, really think about it. Having that support network is, is really helpful. Whereas the way I used to do that, where when the maths was tricky, I did used to do a lot of clicking. I just don't think the kids got it as much. So I'm a massive live modeler. But I think using the exercise book to reduce the disconnect, and also using the adjacent page to provide that extra support, I think that's the best of both worlds. But let me th- let me hand it back to you.
1: Cool. I think I think what you've suggested is a really uh, great approach for sure, Craig. And that was actually what I was doing just before. I've recently moved to experimenting with the slideshows because I found that. Um, well, first of all, I can write much more neatly on a book than i yeah, can on the me board too, me too. so the setting out a lot better second you've got like that page equals board kind of approach where yeah. you're showing you're modeling to students exactly how you want them uh, to lay it out and and yeah definitely had those cognitive load benefits there are a couple of challenges i felt w- found with that though um, often i couldn't show everything in the one visualizer shot that i wanted to mm-hmm. for students so i might kind of do it go do some working off the bottom of the visualise a shot, I'd have to shift my, shift my book up and the question might disappear or some key point might disappear. Yeah, fair. Yep. Whereas with with like the design of a slideshow, you can take the time to go, all right, what what do students need to have on this this page? Um, I, think, I think that uh, to respond to the pace thing as well. I think a slideshow is actually much more flexible with pace because you can speed up or slow down depending upon what's needed by students by students. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you're writing, you can only really slow down because you can only write so fast. And a good example um, from last lesson was we were looking at first finding the highest common factor. So, that was the first skill that I kind of taught students. They did some practice of that. And then the next um, skill that we worked on was factorizing. And the first step in factorizing was finding the highest common factor, right? Um, And I found that I didn't need to model finding the highest common factor again. So, mm. I, in the slideshow, I could just click bang and that would just animate the, all the steps yes. we showed before. And I was like, that's what we did before. Remember, this is what it's supposed to look like. And then we'd follow on from there. Uh, but I, I understand what you're saying about the kind of maybe students aren't getting it. I mean, I, I, I'm actually, I'm not as convinced as you are about the fact that if it looks like their, tech, their book then that's going to help them understand it better than if it looks like a slideshow. Um, but I would say that if you do the we do well, um, as you was kind of highlighting before, that modeling, there will actually be kind of a check for understanding yes. at each step, right? So, it's like, all right, here's what I do. Step one, bang, step two, bang, step three, bang, step four, bang. All right, we do. Step one, you have a go. I'm going to check your understanding. All right, you got that. Step two, you have a go. I'm going to check your understanding. Step three, I'm going to check. Step four, I'm going to check. Okay, you do. Put it all together. Mm. So I think I think if you're doing good teaching practice with the I do, we do, you do structure, it, you, you're actually a lot more flexible with the, with the slideshow in terms of your pace and so on. And it's going to be a lot more efficient than if you're trying to do it with pen and paper.
0: Interesting, interesting. Just two more bits on this then. So the first, I, I forgot to mention this point before. You said a big advantage of having the slideshow was that you would have a record of your teaching and so on. I, com- I completely agree with that. It, of course, it would be the same with the book, right? The, the teacher examples book. And it, again, I think it's quite a nice document that you can, you know, add your annotations, add your comments, and it's there. It's also good to photocopy for the kids if they were missing a lesson and, and so on and so forth. So it can work with that. Well, my final kind of question on this all, and this is this was the kind of nailing the coffin for me on, on animation, what about like geometry stuff? What about transformations? What about angle measuring and stuff? Where And like compass work and things like that. Surely you're not doing that on the slideshow.
1: Yeah. There are different modalities that work work better for different things. There's never going to be like a one size fits all. Slideshow's always better. Book's always better. Like for a lot of that stuff that you've just mentioned then, I think often like an animation is actually going to be one of the most helpful tools, right? So you're going to jump jump on a YouTube clip and show... If it's some sort of a transformation, um, you're going to show a shape rotating or you're going to show a slide or a a shift or something like that. Um, So I think modalities are going to change. So couldn't agree more. Um, So, yeah, and and if you need to model how to use a compass, then you're going to want to jump under the visualizer with that for sure as well. um, Definitely. Um, So, yeah
0: all right okay we'll leave we'll leave that hanging there that's good okay agree disagreeably there. disagree agreeably that's all totally. right that's fine that's fine <laughs>
1: totally i mean i mean i'm you know i think i think you're more firm on this than i am um this is a space that i'm exploring uh and kind of checking out one one other thing i want to say on this mm. is i think that had the way they do it um greg's school is they don't i'm not sure if they actually do animate the solutions that they show students, but what they have is like the question, then the teacher might model it on the board or on a visualizer. And then the next slide will be the work solution, Uh, not necessarily animated. But but the point of that next slide, and I think he might have talked about this in in the podcast with you, the point of the next slide is for the beginning teachers who aren't sure what the method is, Mm. right? So, I think you can kind of have the best, I think there's probably a way to kind of get a lot of the benefits yes. of what you were talking about, and a lot of benefits what I've talked about with some sort of a hybrid approach, um, in there too. And then you know, if you wanted the scaffold next to the teacher on the right hand side under the visualizer, or not under the visualizer, you could just they could print out that slide for themselves or something. So that's probably. Greg's Greg Greg's probably beaten us to it, Craig, and found the optimal solution already.
0: <laughs> That's good. All right, love it. Right, okay. So my final one, all, I'm going a bit different. I'm going to try and do this um, throughout our however long we keep we keep this going for. Third one, go for something a little bit different. So I've got you in mind here, all. So um, as we spoke about in your kind of Patreon slot, we might not have spoke about this in the main episode. You and your partner are expecting um, your your first child um, very very soon. Maybe by the time this this goes out. So you're going to be screwed in many ways, but one way you are is sleep, right? Sleep's going to be a big issue for you. Now, regular listeners will know I'm obsessed with sleep. I've been a poor sleeper for, for many, many, many years, really struggle. And also a bit like you all, I love listening to every, whether it's Tim Ferriss or whatever, anyone who's got some ideas on this, I'll, I'll listen and I'll try. So I've found three things that have Genuinely improved my sleep. So, I'm going to share these three and I'll just kind of leave it hanging there just in case. If there's anyone out there who also struggles with sleep, maybe some of these things will help. So, I'm not going to talk about the obvious ones like avoiding caffeine and blah, 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 and blue lights and all that. I've done all those things and I found they helped. But these are the three kind of biggest things that have, have really helped me. So the first one is from Dr. Andrew Huberman, who is regularly on Tim Show, and he has his own podcast. And he says, the single most important thing you can do to improve your sleep is to get exposure to sunlight as soon as you can when you wake up. So I've started doing this now. As soon as I wake up, I just go outside five minutes, 10 minutes if I can, but five will do it. If it's raining, I just put a hood on or whatever. If you can combine it with walking around, that's supposed to be better as well because you get the exercise. And the, the the biology behind this is that the sunlight triggers this release of cortisol, which kind of kickstarts your body clock almost as a countdown to when you're going to be going to sleep, you know, 12 hours, 14 hours after that. And if you don't do that and you just do what I did for many years, which is either you stay inside, have your breakfast, jump in a car, drive to work, or go straight upstairs to the office blah 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 even if you've got really bright lights in your house they nowhere near come anywhere close to generating that i think it looks is the measurement of kind of strength of of uh, sunlight they come nowhere near to getting that same intensity that you need to kick start your kind of cortisol release so this that's probably been the single biggest uh, change for me has been exposure to to sunlight early on so that's number one number two um, and again, this will be a surprise to nobody, I'm no doctor, so just take this next advice with a huge pinch of salt and do your own research, blah, 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 otherwise we'll get sued, Ollie, before we start this, is, um, I'm popping a little bit of magnesium at night, a little magnesium supplement, and what this is supposed to do, and I found again, there's a lot of this could be placebo effects, but um I'll, I'll take anything, is it's supposed to calm down a busy mind, and my mind is, I get into bed and it is flipping, racing all over the show, so, um, magnesium Um huberman talks about he has a kind of a cocktail of these things he's popping all sorts of stuff but magnesium seems to be the, the one for me and there doesn't seem to be any side effects or anything like that so a bit of magnesium may help and the final one i've got it written down here oh yeah this is good so when i lie in bed so a bit like you ollie i've i've, I've tried all the meditation all the mindfulness i can never make it stick as a habit i really really struggle with it But the one thing I have managed to make a habit because it's really easy, it's very low cost in terms of time and effort is this four, seven, eight breathing. Are you onto this one? Have you heard of this one? Four, seven, right? This will be a life changer for you as well, um, Ollie, right? So four, seven, eight breathing is you breathe in through your nose for four seconds. And it's quite an intense kind of breathing in for four seconds. You then hold that breath for seven seconds and then you exhale out of your mouth for eight seconds. And you repeat this cycle. And as a minimum, you probably want to do it four times. Um, But again, that only takes like a minute, 90 seconds, something like that. As a maximum, they recommend about eight times. You don't really want to go too far over that. But again, it just... It just really calms me. I find it. and I try and do it throughout the day as well. just a couple of times during the day, just four seven, eight, a few cycles of that, and it can can make a difference. So they'd be my big three. So it would be exposure to early sunlight, pop a bit of magnesium and a bit of four seven eight. Now the big disclaim well, the big kind of problem in my life at the moment is you can do all of that. But if you've got a four-year-old currently sleeping in bed next to you, which I have at the moment, who at three in the morning likes to wake up with a question. So I'll give you the the two questions he's asked the last two nights. So two nights ago, woke up at three in the morning. Daddy, daddy, where did the first monkey come from? So we had to have a chat about bloody evolution at three in the morning. And then this morning, when I was absolutely knackered, three in the morning... Daddy, do men have boobies? We had so then I had to explain nipples and, and all that kind of thing. So you can do all the strategies in the world, but w- there are going to be barriers that are going to screw over anything. But they would be my big three year uh, sleep things. How, how are you in terms of sleep, all? They're
1: good. Um, I am luckily a pretty good sleeper. Uh, some of the things I have, but, but I couldn't agree more. Like. I think sleep is like the first step in the causal chain of Correct. success and fulfillment. Correct. Like 100%. Like if I find myself on YouTube shorts, it's because I didn't sleep well enough or yeah. I, I'm better, if I find myself like reaching for copious amounts of chocolate or sugar or caffeine, it's because I haven't slept enough. And it just kind of sends you down this negative yep. cascade. Um, the, the thing that I've, Found most helpful with sleep is a consistent bedtime Mm. Mm. uh, because and and then letting myself get up actually when I wake up. So if I wake up early, I will just get up, and that's because I I I take that as a signal that my body's had enough rest. And sometimes I wake up at like four and I just get up. It, It it I have to have like had a good string of sleep, but if I have and I wake up and I'm alert at four, I'm like okay. That means I've had enough. Yes. Something else is I recently got a watch that kind of tracks my sleep. Uh, and that's been really helpful as well because I've kind of learnt that I need like what, about 6 hours and 40 minutes of sleep just by looking at averages over weeks yep. and thinking about when I'm feeling well. And it can me- it means that I know if I'm kind of in a bit of sleep credit or a bit of sleep debt. And so, that's just another little bit of data yes. that helps me. But I have heard that for people who have big issues with sleep, often tracking your sleep like that is not the best idea because sure. people can get a bit obsessive about it. Um, uh, question for you, Craig. Mm. Um, it seems to me like the biggest factor influencing your sleep at the moment is, is whether or not there's a four-year-old in your bed. Uh, what? what stra- I assume you tried some strategies right, to, uh, to, now, to remedy this challenge. This tell is me a
0: disaster. It. So for listeners, let me describe our sleeping situation at the moment. This is We're in an absolute disaster zone here, right? So we've got a one-year-old and a four-year-old. So the one-year-old sleeps with Kate, his mum, at the moment in one room, um, because he's very, very needy and stuff. At night, he goes in a cot, and it all just kicks off. So he's just in bed with with Kate. Uh, we reached the decision that there was no point us kind of both being screwed over at night. So Kate takes the hit at the night, and then I'll pick up the pieces if Kate needs to go to bed and stuff in the morning. But that leaves Isaac. So Isaac is very good at going to sleep in his own bed, no problem at all in the world, but then 100% of the time, he will then get up during the night and come in, and it's a big faff. So option one there at two in the morning is you say, no, Isaac, let's go back into your own bed, and then he's crying, and then it's stressful, and then I have to sit next to him whilst he goes to sleep, and then I can't then get back to sleep, blah, blah, blah. Or option two is he just climbs into bed and goes to sleep. So being the weakling i am i've taken option two now i know i'm setting myself up for trouble here because there's no way to break this cycle there is absolutely no way but what i'm telling myself is two things one he's not going to be doing this when he's 18 so at some point he's going to stop so let's hope it's not in 12 years time let's hope it's a little bit sooner than that and the other thing is kate's um, because i I get a bit stressed about this all to be honest with you because i think I like other parents aren't doing this like they're like they're sleeping in the bed like the mum and dad together and the kids so I think what's wrong with us blah 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 but then Kate sent me one of these corny um, things she found on Facebook and I normally have, have no time for this but it was something along the lines of like your time with your kids is so short and there'll be a time in your life where you'd give anything to be sleeping next to you know next to your little boy or whatever and if it means three in the morning we're having a chat about nipples and monkeys, I'll, I'll take it for now because, yeah, we're getting <laughs> through it. So I'm trying not to worry about it too much, but it is a bit of a disaster at the moment.
1: Yeah. And, and do you, are you finding in the day you're, you're actually tired because of it or is it like not that big i
0: miles better than – now I'm doing this where I'm not making a big thing about it. I'm just saying just – he just got like it he, he just comes now and he, he thinks he owns the show he comes in with his bloody duvet his pillow and everything just crawls into bed doesn't even say anything it's just so normal to him now so now i'm doing that i'm just i'm miles better where i was knackered whereas when i'm trying to make a thing of it and trying to stop him coming in and stuff i was getting stressed and it was really affecting mood energy all the things that you talked about mm. whereas now i'm all right yeah I'm, I'm i'm used to it now so it's it's fine it's fine yeah
1: cool Thanks, Craig. That's really, really interesting and and potentially helpful for me in the next couple of months. We'll see.
0: (laughs) Right. So we're going to end the main pod there. But for listeners of Ollie's Patreon, uh, stick around. That if you've not signed up to Ollie's Patreon, and um, this may may uh, cause you to want to sign up. So we're going to record a little bit of bonus content. But I hope you found this kind of main idea useful. The plan, Ollie, is we're going to commit to at least three of these, right? I'm um, going to do these for the next kind of three months, um, but obviously fitting around Ollie's uh, big change in, in life that's that's about to happen. But I hope you find these uh, these podcasts useful. Um, as I say, for a selfish reason, I find it incredibly useful just to talk through my thinking with Ollie and also to learn some stuff with ollie but hopefully you uh, listeners will find them useful soon so we will sign off from the main pod now so it is bye from me and ollie is it bye from you
1: it is indeed thanks Craig. It was super fun